direction that football group is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like the ball, I like the ball season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson today with a very special interview. Ryan Leaf, former NFL quarterback, San Diego Chargers, Dallas Cowboys, a few other teams. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, along the way. Seattle Seahawks for about five minutes. Yeah. They bounced around a little bit. But yes, yeah, so Ryan Leaf, most notable for being the number two quarterback right after Peyton Manning and a, a guy who's turned his life around. Yeah. And we, we already did the interview, but we're, mm-hmm. you know... It's going to be a good one, this I been think, because he gets coming. into a lot, of, a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. We were planning on doing a Ryan Leaf, Peyton Manning um, special. Remember in the, the offseason when we were doing the Randy Moss special, the Montana Young special? We were going to do one on um, Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf, that 98 draft. And it, you know things fell apart. It didn't happen. But we've been basically planning since then to have Ryan on the podcast because – this is one of the most fascinating parts of NFL history to me. Everyone loves the draft. We're getting towards draft time this year. Is it Trevor Lawrence? Is it Justin Fields? Is it Zach Wilson? This was what was happening in 1998. It was Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf, the top of the draft. And only looking back in it, is it like, well, <laughs> obvious. Peyton Manning, the, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Ryan Leaf has been talked about as the greatest draft bust of all time. But at the time it was seen as 50-50. It was which quarterback do you favor more? The talented uh, maverick with the big arm and the mobility that played at Washington State, dragged them to a a Rose Bowl game? Or is it Peyton Manning, the goody two-shoes, Archie Manning's, um, you know, progeny, number one born, no, not number two born, but number one quarterback born? Um, Like, which guy do you want? And it was a close-run thing. The Colts ultimately made the right choice, and Ryan Leaf becomes the cautionary tale. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack in this because we're still debating the guy with the big arm and the mobile. We're yeah. still debating those things when, you know, and I posed this question to Ryan about, you know, the guys that have become the best of this generation were doubted at some point or they had some physical limitations or whatever it might have been, but they essentially overcame it. I think it does show just how difficult uh, or how important the off-field is and yeah. how important guys are going to handle things. And um, I think that will be his defining legacy to this whole draft process. But let's let's get in, talk to him, and then we'll circle back and, and wrap it up at the end. Sounds good. Here's Ryan Leaf. All right, welcome in Ryan Leaf to the show, former NFL quarterback. How should we introduce you, Ryan? What, what title do you want here? <laughs> Human being. All right. <laughs> I think it's the best way to do it. Fellow you know, human being and former NFL quarterback. Welcome, man. How's it going? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. So Sam is our uh, journalistic expert here, so he wanted to start off yeah. the, uh, well, the discussion. obviously, we don't have any idea what we're doing when it comes to interviewing people. So <laughs> I don't know how regular you know, professionals prep this kind of thing, 
with the first thing I do when we're going to talk to somebody is head to their Wikipedia page. And obviously anything on Wikipedia is gospel. (laughs) Um, But Ryan, when I was looking at your Wikipedia page, Wikipedia says that you considered going to the University of Miami as a linebacker back in the day. Is that true? Because that's awesome no, if it is. No, it's not true. No, not even close. Uh, not even close. Wiki's um, just full of it. For whatever reason, recently I've been doing a lot more podcasts and and people that's I was wondering where that question came from because I was getting that question a lot. <laughs> and now I know they, they got it from yeah. Wikipedia. Uh, no, Dennis Erickson was the head coach. There was Montana ties. I'm a recruiting trip. He, he just let me know that uh, the recruiting coordinator um, saw me more as a tight end linebacker type. And, uh, and I thought that was really darn honest of him because, you know, he made my decision really easy not to go to the University of Miami. Okay, so there's at least there's there's a shred of truth at the back of it somewhere just not quite the way it's presented. i don't even think linebacker was it was it was it was tight end it was tight end you know uh makes for a better boy, story yeah uh, you like know it. you know miami's had a lineage of amazing tight ends so i i suspect that i could have fallen in line there with with that but you know i had always played quarterback and i i planned on doing so for the foreseeable future or especially wherever i went to college yeah, that would have been that would have been right in the middle of that. Next Ray Lewis. Of, uh, well, it would have been right in the the middle of that run of Miami tight ends, the Jeremy Shockeys, and I would have oh, put him true. right in the middle of that group. How fast were you at that point if they were looking at you a tight end? Potentially, yeah, I was a, I was a, I was a, I was an incredible athlete when I was in high school. <laughs> that that diminished over time. I feel like, um, but yeah, I was fast. I could jump out of the gym. Um, you know, basketball was my my favorite sport. It's the one I thought I was going to actually play college college in was, was basketball. So, um, you know, I was a shortstop uh, on the baseball diamond, so I could move, you know, laterally and do the things that I needed to. And and uh, um, so yeah, I mean, it wouldn't it's not it wouldn't have been a stretch. Don't get me wrong, but uh, and I had the best hands on the team, right? Quarterbacks always do. <laughs> always. They'll touch, certainly tell you that anyway. Yeah, Touch the ball every single snap. So. Um, I'm, yeah. I've always been fascinated by your story, Ryan. To what extent do you think that you that the NFL changed the way they evaluate quarterbacks because of you and because of the way your story panned out? And by that, I mean, you know, obviously you had all the physical tools we just talked about. It could have been a tight end for um, an elite college program, the arm, the size, strength, all these kinds of things. But after you, it feels like the sort of psychological part of the evaluation became bigger and teams focus more on that and um, and actually gave more weight to it because of the, the differences between, you know, the way you and, and Peyton Manning panned out. I, I think they say they did, but I still don't think they did. Really? Uh, you know, if, if an owner likes the guy and likes his big arm and, uh, and everything, it, it's, there's not much that's going to stop a billionaire owner from telling the general manager or whoever that this is the way it's going to go. So um, I think they probably had some uh, added something to the analytics and in, in, in how they went about doing some things, maybe showing up on campus, talking to different types of people rather than just the coach, uh, but equipment manager, you know, owner of the bar uh, on campus, just things like that. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think it, it changed dramatically. If you can play, um, the difference about me was is if I would have went out and continued to do what I did in those first two games uh, throughout my rookie year, I could have been the biggest asshole there is. It doesn't matter if you can play. 
you know, people don't, people don't care about that. Right. And it's, it's, it sucks, but that's the truth. Right. So those first two games, you guys were two and oh, right. And if that had happened today, after two games, where the Colts, the Colts were zero and two at the time, I believe yeah, I too. Right. So if that had happened today, what would the social media landscape look like <laughs> after two games? Everybody's Colts, you idiots. You picked the wrong right. guy. Look at the Chargers. What was – it was 1998. There was some internet and all that stuff. Like, what was the buzz after two games? Did it look like, hey, this is – we're off to a good start? No, no, it did. Yeah, there was there was a lot of excitement uh, heading into that Kansas City game. Um, we just beat Steve McNair, Eddie George, the Tennessee Oilers, um, to beat Tennessee Titans on the road. Um Little did we know, I got uh, I got a staph infection in my leg and was spent the whole week in the hospital leading up to that Kansas City game, and uh, and still tried to play, you know, and played the worst uh, game of my life. Um, and I can honestly say my career—I mean, imagine that—I honestly can say my career was over after that, not because of how I played, but because of how I how I dealt with it, how I reacted to it, to the media, to the criticism, all of that. Um, simply because of how I, I reacted to a, a poor performance. Um, so when you look back on your career and the, and the way everything went, um, at what point do you think that it started? Is that the, the sort of point where you think it started? Well, to I kind of answered that for you, didn't I? Yeah, right, and, so you, but also... Yeah. When at the time did you realize that things were starting to spiral oh, back? Never. You never did. Always always thought I had a just put me on the football field. That's what I do. That's what I'm really good at. Um, you know, let me just let me just play football, not have to talk about it or um, you know, deal with the, the stuff off the field and everything will be fine. But once you once that confidence teeters just a little bit in an elite athlete right it's just the, the the psyche is is extremely fragile and if you're not on a good team uh you don't got good pieces around you uh and you lack confidence especially at the quarterback position um that that runs away quick so um i i i thought at all times no matter what at the end of my career with the Chargers, when i moved on to tampa when i moved on to dallas when i moved on to seattle i I just assumed I would do what I'd always done in my life, and that's just play, and that would have been good enough. But at this, you know, at this level, that's just that's not good enough, right? That's just right. not. Yeah, I, I want to go back to the pre-draft process because this this whole thing is fascinating to me, right? It's you and Peyton Manning, the clear top two. Was there how much were you, you know, how much did you guys cross paths during that process? How much? Were you in tune with how, how teams perceived you guys? And was there ever a point where you said, hey, the Colts are going to pick me over Peyton Manning? What was – if you could encapsulate that entire pre-draft process and the you versus Peyton, you know, how, would you, how would you sum that up? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't too complicated. We were going to be one or two. Um, I wanted to go to San Diego simply because I was a West Coast guy. I had family in Encinitas. I thought playing in Indianapolis in the cold – Midwest was, wasn't a smart thing. So, um, you know, we made it pretty clear to the Colts that I wasn't really interested. Um, so I don't know if that made that much of a difference. I think they, you know, from how Bill Polian says it, um, they were split 50, 50 in the room. 
Um, Jim Irsay, you know, he was, he was pretty invested in me, uh, knowing more about his life, his personality. Sounds like him and I are more similar in nature than, uh, than him and Peyton. And uh, therefore, he was maybe more impulsive uh, at wanting me. Are you saying Jim Irsay has a cannon for an arm too? Is that what you're implying? <laughs> probably. <laughs> yes. Probably. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, it didn't, no one, everybody just assumed it was 1A and 1B. Um, I will say that some of the pre-draft stuff in terms of the white hat and the black hat, uh, that kind of started to be a narrative and I didn't correct it. Um, I didn't say how it bothered me how I uh, had felt, you know, hyper criticized growing up in my town, um, even while at college. And, and I, I wasn't the Dennis Rodman type, but I, I ran with it um, because that's how I felt I could win. Uh, and uh, so that was probably the biggest pre-draft misnomer or difference between us. Um, you know, I was probably the more talented, of course, but it's not, you know, really about that. You know, everybody who's drafted that high is talented. It's uh, it's about what you do uh, from Sunday to Sunday. It's amazing when you look back and, and read some of the things that were written at the time. Um, I found this old 1998 ESPN draft preview magazine, and obviously the the, the big sort of feature article in it is this this uh, split um, piece about you and Peyton Manning and. You know, the whole thing about Manning is about how he's been sitting in Tennessee's film room since the season finished. You know, just all he's been doing is is watching film and playing golf, you know, since since the college football season. And the interview with you takes place in a hot tub. Um, in That's which, the ESPN interview, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah ESPN. That, and the whole article is uh, um, based uh, black and white. Right. Um, yeah, but I was back in I was back in the uh, um, Pullman getting ready for my workout, and uh, I was the dude from uh, Independence, Kansas, as the JC coach on Last Chance U, doing an interview in a hot tub. It was just yeah, yeah. What an what, what an idiotic thing. But I, I spent the whole off season in the film room too, you know. Yeah. Um, that doesn't come up. That as was much that was always convoluted. That like um, I wasn't a hard worker or didn't study film or or any of and all of that, I just, um, I made terrible mistakes when it came to uh, interaction, social interaction, because I was so, um, I, I, I was such a, a egomaniac with a self-esteem problem. That was, that was the bigger issue in all of this. And, uh, and then at the end of the article, uh, after kind of uh, trashing my personality they still said i was going to be the they still were going to pick me so yeah it uh it was really interesting um i assumed that was exactly where i was supposed to be um you know it, it nothing surprised me you know went to sleep nine o'clock the night before the draft knew where i was going i was excited about it um you know this is this is what i had worked my whole life towards and uh it was going to be destiny fulfilled and uh you know, I was going to play 18, 19 years, but win a couple Super Bowls, you know, right off into the sunset. That was the, that was the plan. So uh, the stuff, you know, the hot tub interview, all those kinds of things, how much do you think that they were um, like reflective of a real sort of issue in terms of 
you know, not the things that Peyton Manning would have done, say, for, for want of a better term, and how much of it was just the media taking that stuff and overblowing it because they wanted to hit that narrative of, you know, you're the bad boy and he's the, the, the good golden boy of, of quarterbacking. I think that was that was the storyline in the in the draft. You know, they were this was pitted uh, against one another. So that was the storyline. You know, I was, you know, if I had played well, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, I was the same kid I was in college as I as I was in the pros. That's the difference. Uh, you're you're it's a job now, and uh, um, all all your teammates care about is if you perform and help them be successful and make money and put food on the table for their families. So, you know. They were, you know, more than happy to uh, deal with my immature antics in, in weeks one and two. But uh, when you go out and perform like the way I did and go one for 15 for four yards and turn it over a bunch and then act out like a petulant child in the locker room with media members, you know, they're like, hey, you know, we're, we're not here for this. We're here, for, we're here to try to win a championship. And he clearly thinks more about himself uh, uh, than the team. And uh, that's just, that's not how, that's not how the NFL works. And you're going to be out pretty quickly if that's the way you continue. And that certainly was the case. Well, I appreciate your honesty about that. Obviously you've had a lot of time to reflect and that's, you know, the ability to turn your life around and, you know, do some great things coming out of that has, is the bigger story in all of this. Right. But it's good to get that, that framework, that groundwork of, of, you know, what happened in 98 and, and beyond. How do you, how does the NFL go about, judging I don't want to use the word character but judging the player off the field yeah what is the best way to dig into that and have an idea Um, because there's Peyton but you know Tom Brady and Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers they they weren't exactly like Peyton was kind of destined to be the best right I mean he looked like the best he wasn't you know he was that wasn't that's people get that twisted too right you know they didn't know you know Mel Kiper, who's been doing this forever and ever and ever, thought, you know, if he didn't have the Manny name, he'd be a third round or fourth round draft pick or something like that is how it went. So, I mean, no one knows. Yeah. You go into a draft pick 50-50. Maybe he'll be good. Maybe he won't. He's really talented. He's a great college quarterback. You don't. No one knows. And anybody who tells you that they know is absolutely lying to you. There's some line out there from Bill Polian saying that they had a first round draft grade on on tom brady i don't buy it you don't believe that no, <laughs> no one believes no, that not if, a chance if you did you draft him right you just had a quarterback that went three and 13 the year before are you telling me that if he was a first i mean that's not you don't know no one knows you can you make your best educated guess you have a lot of people backing you in terms of analytics um i, I think people have done a better job of um seeing how you treat people especially when you fail, when things get bad. That's the bigger issue for me, is when things get bad. Because when things get bad in the NFL, they're exacerbated. Watch what happened to Carson Wentz in one year. He went to the playoffs every other year, got a huge contract, was the guy there, one bad year, and it's over. It's just done. Uh, He didn't handle things very well. The organization didn't handle things very well. But if you're trying to tell me anybody, uh, especially in a pandemic year, has any idea how any of these quarterbacks are going to pan out? Um, they're they're just they're lying to you. How much do you think that a team can help um, the the young player when things start to go off the rails? You know, quarter, Huge. whether it's whether it's usually impactful, or right? Because uh, you know, I talked about the, the the psyche of an elite athlete, especially one highly drafted. There's a loyalty issue, right? When you're drafted by the team, 
the city supposed to be the savior when things start to go bad and there is a a turn of the tables if you will where you don't feel like they have your back there is a resentment that can happen quickly we saw it play out with Dwayne Haskins this year um, rather quickly now he contributed to all of it but once you feel like you don't have uh, confidence behind you support behind you um, you become impulsive and you're like I'm you know, I'm the franchise quarterback. Uh, you better have my back. You're not going to tell me what to do. It's 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 a, an amazing psycho psychological um, uh, journey to watch things play out like this uh, in, in a situation that people put a ton of onus on, like like it's the end all be all being a quarterback in the NFL. Like you you, you could be out tomorrow. Like the stress and the and the pressure and everything like that you asked for it. So you don't have to continue to do it. Um, people pretend like this is the most important thing in the world. And it's, you know, you're playing a silly child's game. <laughs> Ryan, I like to, on our podcast here as a former minor league pitcher, I like to compare Stop everything it. to my minor league baseball career. And I cannot relate to anything that you just said, because I was undrafted. I had zero expectations. No pressure. No pressure. What? So the pressure for me was just to like, oh, man, I really want to make it to the big leagues. I have to work right. so hard to make it. And then I was teammates with Buster Posey, who was first-round oh, pick, yeah. $6 million did signing. You play with, did, you play with, did you play with Tyler Graham? I did, yeah. He was on my team, too. Tyler grew up, Tyler grew up a couple blocks from me. My little brother and that whole family, yeah. We had, I, I went and watched him play in the minor league system down in uh, Arizona a few times when he was trying to make the majors there. See, you probably came and saw me play. There we go. Yeah. Ryan Leaf, big Steve Obviously. Palazzolo fan. Of course. As Who always. Who else? <laughs> Tyler was great, super fast. Um, super fast. But it was it was just funny to me because I remember seeing Buster, and he was like this young he was yeah, young kid just up to AAA, knowing he's going to make it to the big leagues. And, I'm, and I was just thinking, like, I wonder if I have any advice for him. I'm like, I really don't. You know, I've been around five extra years before him. But I don't have any advice because he's got, like, the pressure of the organization on him. And I have just like, man, I really hope I make it. It's just different types of pressure, which I think you you laid out pretty well, right? Like, I think people look at athletes and they're like, oh, he's making millions of dollars. He's fine, right? He's happy. But they don't realize as a competitor the pressure we that you put on happy. yourself, right? Yeah, we think we're happy. Uh, I use this line um, in, my, in my speeches when I travel around the country and um, talking about what success is or what, what at least I thought success was when I went into the NFL and it was power, uh, money, power, and prestige. That's what I thought success was. It's what we've been shown, I think, in um, mainstream media, um, you know, the Kardashians, everything. Money, power, and prestige is what uh, is success. And it's it couldn't be further from the truth. It's really interesting because um, that's that makes perfect sense. When I think a lot of people look back you know, you're remembered as one of the, the biggest draft busts uh, of all time by a lot of football fans. And yet on your wall back there, you know, you've got pictures of yourself in a Chargers uniform. You've got the Chargers helmet back there. I would have assumed, I think a lot of people would have assumed that you wouldn't necessarily celebrate or want to remember that. But do you see that as, you know, how do, how do you think Are of... Are you kidding me? Well, how do you think of it? thousand of us ever, <laughs> yeah. ever in the hundred years of football. That, and, and guess what? You'll never hear a peer say the word bust. Never. Right. Never. It's the fans. It's the media. We know how hard it is to get where we got. 
And for anybody to shit on it, that's on them. That's a projection from them. And so, yeah, going to celebrate it. Wow. What an honor. Um, what a brotherhood. Um, what's something special to be a part of? Um, God, I mean, I, I, are you kidding me? I'm from Montana. There's <laughs> never been a first-round draft pick from the state of Montana, ever. I'm the only one. There are more first-round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole <laughs> state of Montana. So, yeah, I'm going to be extremely proud. You know, things don't work out. And I let it affect me really negatively to a point that it took me to a prison cell in a, a, a crippling addiction because I cared so much about what other people thought of me when none of it was true. So, yeah, it's, it's extremely prideful, uh, but also extremely grateful that I went through the struggles because, you know, I have a story, uh, it's impactful, and it's really made me who I am today. So that's, yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot of pride uh, around it, especially um, who I got to play the game with. I appreciate that perspective so much. I really do. I mean, it's it's great. You've, you've turned it around for the better. I, I want to ask about the – I got to ask an X's and O's question really quick, though, because in college you guys were, like, spread it out four wide, right? And it, think about how many times through the years we've heard, oh, spread system quarterback and adjusting to the pro game. Outside of the off-field stuff, was there any on-field X's and O's transition that was difficult, easy? How was that for you coming from Washington State system going to San Diego? Um, yeah, it was, I mean, Mike Price's offense was about as complicated, uh, as, as you'd ever, you'd ever imagine. Uh, we did a lot. He put a lot in my hands in terms of, uh, audible wing at the line of scrimmage, uh, when I saw, uh, numbers and, and how we ran the football. I always, I always, you know, I always thought this was pretty interesting. I, I feel like owners are doing a better job of this. We, I think we watched it play out with the Jeff Fisher to Sean McVay. Uh, turnover in the coaching aspect and how well Jared Goff did. Um, you know, you have to realize that the quarterback, especially when you drafted so high, he's the asset, right? Coaches uh, have to work towards what is the best part of your team and what asset does well. And going into my second year after Kevin Gilbride was fired and June Jones decided to take the Hawaii job, you know, they were, they went through what they said was an exhaustive head coaching search and they landed on Mike Riley out of Oregon state who had not had a winning season in college. And in the, it was in the pac 10 too at Oregon state. He had a guy just down the road uh, who had one in the pac 12 pac 10, especially a championship just two years previous and ran the offense that I knew like the back of my hand. Um, it's interesting that, with an organization and complete frustration with the, the play of your rookie franchise quarterback that you would deviate and go a different way. And I really feel like teams now, I mean, look at Joe Brady, you know, what he did with Joe Burrow in one year and, you know, who's to say he's not going to be a, a head coach in this league really quick. Um, so Cliff Kingsbury to Arizona, then you draft, a quarterback who's been running that system since he was in diapers. Like the NFL has changed significantly. It's not uh, the old uh, old school club where they're imposing their will on you, but rather what you do well can be integrated into what they do well 
and what which can make them successful. That, it's a great point. I, we've talked about that a little bit on the show. I, I always joke about the old um, the article that said when Michael Vick got drafted, it was like Michael Vick is going to fit into the West Coast offense or something. Like they were trying to make him into. Joe Montana right. slash Steve Young, right? He was going to be this timing and rhythm, short area passer. It's like, oh my, like, of all the headlines that I read, like, that's the craziest one. So you do think the NFL is, like, as far as taking steps toward adjusting to quarterbacks, especially college oh, yeah. quarterbacks, right? They're, they're doing a much better job now than they did back in your day, you'd say. Oh, God. I mean, they just, just a few years ago. And I use the Jeff Fisher, uh, Sean McVay analogy all the time because guess what? Like, Jared Goff was teetering on my statistics in that rookie year. <laughs> yeah. And the, the word bust was being thrown around after one year. And you bring in Sean McVay and dude go, leads him to a Super Bowl, right? I mean, that's, that's seeing what your best asset is in terms of what you do at the quarterback position. What's ironic about it all, it still wasn't good enough because they traded him away from Matt Stafford. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough world to, to be an NFL quarterback out there right now. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, you were, you were hit hard by the sad loss of Vincent Jackson. Um, what do you think the league needs to do to help former players more than they're doing right now? Well, they have to care. I just, that wasn't, I wasn't blaming them. It's not their fault. Right. I just don't, I just don't think they care. Um, and somebody needs to call them out on that because they, you know, they're, they're a huge propaganda machine and, and, and they're about marketing. Right. And. They pretend like they care, and uh, I mean that couldn't have been more um, evident. I think in in this situation, especially from a guy that not only was a very good football player, but actually was uh, a solid uh, human being. You know, a lot of those two things don't match up. You can be a great football player, and not a good person. That happens all the time. He fit that role. Um, and he died alone in a hotel room. And so there's got to be a better way to identify. Um, I'm not saying the NFL is responsible for the well-being of, of somebody years after they've played. Um, I think there's, there needs to be some accountability. And uh, I just want to see, you know, some effort. Right. Uh, I've watched it play out. Um, you know, I watched myself be arrested multiple times and make it big news and just you never hear a word from anybody. So, you know, it's, you know, me and my, me and my NFL brothers are going to, we're going to change that. We're going to, we're not going to let stuff like that happen again. And it, it overwhelmed me Monday night um, to the point where I was, I was, I was angry. I was sad, um, felt hopeless. And, uh, and I could, I could relate to, to him being alone, dying in a hotel room, I, I really couldn't. It's scary. And I don't want anybody ever to, to, to feel that way again. I think that's an important message to, to send. Um, do you think the game itself needs to make some fundamental changes to start tackling CTE and head injuries and all those kinds of things? Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not naive. I knew, I knew what I was doing was a violent game. You know, I wasn't you know, my, if the NFL knew about it, which it sounds like they, they did and they kept it uh, and they withheld it, the information, you know, then there's some, there's some culpability to them, but listen, you know, I, I don't know if there's anybody out there who doesn't think playing uh, a game that gives you uh, multiple concussions, isn't going to have 
consequences down the line. If given all the information, I'm most likely still going to play, right? Because I know how much it gave me, how much I enjoyed it, uh, all of that. We just have to be understanding of what it looks like. And if the NFL can do things better, unless you can go inside the, the, the skull and wrap the brain um, in something softer, that's the issue, right? You've seen the movie. You've seen the the example. It's an, uh, a piece of fruit in a mason jar floating around, suspended in a in a in a fluid, and you see what a concussion is. A concussion is when the brain inside the skull slams into the skull. So it doesn't matter what you put on outside of the of the head. That's not going to change anything. So I appreciate the attempt to make things safer and whatnot. You know, guys are going to play. It's going to be violent. We don't know what the sport's going to look like, you know, years down the line. I have a three-year-old boy. As of right now, I'm not going to be letting him play football um, or at least wear a helmet until he's 16. And then I think at 16, here's the data. Here's the science. Here's what we know. Um, you make a decision from this point on because I know, I know what a locker room can do in terms of building um, maturity, brother you know brotherhood um you know social economic you know social justice all those things that you know that that is meaningful and still can be meaningful for a young man or young woman ryan let's wrap it up with this and then we'll uh discuss your new show which is coming out soon i'm looking forward to that how, how is the ryan leaf story going to be told and, and do you even do you care how it's told we've talked about the media can kind of you know put it any way that they want but how what, how's ryan leaf going to be remembered is it a wasted talent is it a redemption story or how do you see it now in, in your mind uh doesn't matter <laughs> doesn't matter i'm uh this is our big finish you know, we, were, we were expecting a big I'm, great uh, answer. I'm a flawed human being just like everybody else trying to be better i'm alive i shouldn't be yeah you know so that's all that matters what it will be is it will be told by me it won't be told by somebody else. It won't be interpreted by somebody else. It won't be um, commented on by somebody else um, that, that matters. If, if, if the story uh, will be told, it will be told by me. And because I'm the only one who can tell it. Only one. No one else can. We watched the Tiger Doc uh, last couple weeks. Um, you know, it's not a, it was, it was you know, it was a, it was a, a, a story written by people who uh, don't know and aren't involved and haven't been in his life forever. His voice wasn't a part of it. So therefore, it, it's not real. And that's exactly um, my situation. If, if and when my story will be told, it will be told by me. And um, I lived it. Uh, and I'm a hell of a storyteller. And uh, no one would be able to do it better. Well, we appreciate you taking on the uh, the difficult questions, taking them on, you know, head on. And tell us about your show starting next week, YouTube RDL show. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, you know, Rich Eisen when he's when he's off, uh, he's you know by the grace of God, he's asked me to to host his show and and uh, as a fill in, and I really enjoyed it. You know, and I think that's always been the goal. And with uh, COVID nineteen and um, you know, waiting on maybe uh, 
working with ESPN to have some kind of show or something like that to happen. I just said, you know, 2021, let's take some of this control back. Let's do some things. So, um, you know, I, I uh, sold my, I sold my life story uh, essentially in, in the form of a podcast, just like I told you guys about, uh, it's going to drop right around draft time. It's called bust. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, me and a couple young youngsters who just got out of communication school, kind of in the vein of the Pat McAfee show where he's got a bunch of guys that hustle for him and they've all become, you know, household names in the sporting world and everything. We're going to try it. We're going to do it. So we start March 1st, YouTube, doing a Monday, Wednesday, Friday show, uh, you know, you know, an hour a day talking sports. Uh, I really do believe, you know, sports does amazing things and it brings us all together. It does. It brings us all together. So then we can have those open and honest discussions and i think that's what that's that's what the show is going to be and uh i'm excited to do it you know we'll see a year from now where we're at if we got an audience we got an audience we don't i can look myself in the mirror and go you know you gave it a you gave it a run and uh and i can't be can't be upset with that i'm in yeah awesome i'm sure our millions of listeners we don't really have millions but we have so many listeners here that are going to be tuning in check it out youtube rdl show ryan really appreciate it man that was awesome Great having you. You bet. You guys have a wonderful week. You too. Thank you. you Thank you. All right, Sam, what are your your takeaways from Ryan? It's interesting, right? I mean, the the most interesting point I think he made was this idea that bust is kind of like a media and a fan construct, you know, to players, to athletes, to guys that are doing this, like just making it to the NFL, particularly when you're coming from a place like Ryan Leaf did, you know, small town Montana, as opposed to a football factory somewhere, but just making it there, being the 1% of the 1% of the 1% that makes it that far, it's an achievement regardless. And it's a great achievement regardless of whatever happens after that. We watch these college football games all the time. And there's a whole bunch of guys on the field who know they're never getting any further than this. And this is their achievement. To make it to the NFL at all is something to be celebrated regardless of what happened at the end of it all. Yeah, I've I've always, I've used the term that, teams bust more than players bust yeah and it, I use it generally but it, th- there's definitely truth I think when players have opportunities and they don't take advantage of them but I do think ultimately the onus is on the team like Ryan Leaf did not make himself the second overall pick right in the draft I used more broad examples where in the past we've seen guys who like receivers who across the league had like third and fourth round grades go in the first round and it's like all right that's the team's fault this poor dude sitting there waiting to get picked on not poor dude, but this dude's getting – he's waiting to get picked on day two, and you picked him on day one. That's not on the player. He's not a bust. Like, he just got drafted way too high. So, I just think it's an interesting way of maybe maybe you flip the blame on the team a little bit. Yeah. Uh, do you put it on Ryan at all, though? Because he, cert- because he had all the talent. Like, the Chargers didn't make the wrong move as far as on-field skill went, right? It's interesting when you look back at it. He is making the case that – um, you know, the media was pushing this narrative, the good boy versus bad boy thing, and, and they kind of fed into it. They didn't, you know, they didn't run away from that, thinking that, that was potentially a good thing overall. Um, and obviously, when you look back on these things, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and you can essentially look back on anything and be like, well, obvious. How didn't you see that? Justin Jefferson last year. How wasn't he the number one wide receiver? Why did we screw that up? Like, of course he was going to be. Look at his LSU tape. It's phenomenal. It's amazing, blah, blah, right? But at the time, it wasn't that obvious. When you look back on the Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf thing, 
it does feel a little bit like it was that obvious at the time. Like he's almost this this sort of running list of what have become like red flag cliches. You know, like he gets drafted the day of the draft. He then flies off to Vegas and parties overnight, like rolls up to the Chargers press conferences the next day, like yawning and, you know, probably hung over and just whatever. Right. That feels not great. The interview from the hot tub and some of the quotes from that interview, by the way, are amazing. If you can find that online, it's crazy. Um, the, like if you find there's one piece in this article where it's he's called a an offensive coordinator somewhere in the NFL who basically nails the evaluation and is therefore termed a curmudgeon in the article, right? Just, they're just Let's hear the evaluation. Let's hear it. Okay. One curmudgeon offensive coordinator thinks Leaf is trouble. His attitude is a problem, says our coach. His teammates aren't going to put up with it. The media isn't going to put up with it. Um, he can either develop into a far type or fall on his face. No way I'm putting a franchise in his hands. Now, that guy basically nailed it and was immediately dismissed as just just a grouch, just a you know grouchy old man. Now, even though he was right, hearing Ryan describe the hot tub as just being, hey, it was before a workout, and uh, that's where I was, Yeah, that, that does make me want to put the onus on the media a little bit. Now, even if they got the story right in the end, there's a difference between saying he was in a hot tub yes. like Josh Rosen with a couple girls in his dorm than – a pre-game, a pre-workout hot tub to like, you know, get loose. Agreed. Having said that, counterpoint, the hot tub interview does contain the following lines from Ryan Leaf. Uh, I didn't work out for January and February, he says, giving a caught in the cookie jar grin. Uh, I was going around to the banquet circuit up to two in the morning, schmoozing, eating bad. Guys like me can put on 10 to 15 pounds in a week. I was 261 pounds. Now I'm down to 242. Now I've got a trainer. Now, okay, yes, you can definitely say that, hey, look, the, the jacuzzi thing is something that like a PR director or whatever would like head off at the pass and be like, dude, that's a bad look. Don't do that, right? He didn't have that. He got unlucky in that regard. But like he clearly let himself go after. And maybe he was in the, the tape room grinding, but he says himself, didn't work out for two months. That's, that's not something... T- uh, players would do now and it's not something Peyton Manning was doing at the time I think that's the that's the disconnect there right is there was definitely this self-destructive element to Leaf that eventually overtook him and overcame him when like his maturity couldn't cope with it as as he says when things went awry in San Diego like I said on in the interview I do appreciate him you know essentially owning up to mistakes of the past yeah turning things around he's become uh, essentially, I don't know if motivational speaker is the right term, but he's right. on the speaking circuit talking about his story, owning it and helping people uh, turn things around. I am looking back at the 1998 season. They were 2-0, 16-14 uh, to 14 win in week one, 13-7 win in week two. The game he mentioned in week three, I, I, I thought it looked like a misprint at first. He was one for 15 for four yards mm-hmm. in, that, in that third game against the Kansas City Chiefs, and that is when uh, it, when things that's not great, Bob turned around. I the one thing I will say that I agree with him that I think is tough in the QB evaluation process. You know most about guys when things go wrong, when things go sour, or when guys face adversity. And I think this is what makes Trevor Lawrence really interesting here, right? Like a former number one overall recruit, a wire to wire first overall pick, yeah. always looked the part, Where's much like Andrew Luck. Like, did Andrew Luck ever face adversity at Stanford? Not really. Did Andrew Luck – like, when you look at Andrew Luck's career, did he really 
reached the pinnacle that people expected because he was the second best quarterback from that draft class. Russell Wilson, who did face adversity, surpassed Andrew Luck, right? And again, the best of all time over this last decade, Brady, Breeze, Rodgers all had Juco experience or second round picks and sixth round picks. How will that affect Trevor Lawrence and other quarterbacks going forward? It is such a crucial part of the evaluation. And it's the thing people are using to beat Zach Wilson with, or yeah, Zach Wilson with, because things are so easy for him at BYU this season. Open receivers all the time, offensive line protecting him constantly. Like, okay, he's wasn't had, a captain. Yes, he's had more adversity in a sort of career sense, but in terms of his play, like where we put under pressure, like where is the duress? Because this is too easy right now, and it's not going to be like this in the NFL, which is the sort of the Tua story as well. It's like you're throwing to four first-round wide receivers who are wide the hell open every single play. Of course it's easy. Like I need to see the, I need to see the struggle because that's the relevant part to the NFL. How do you identify the struggle too? Because you could look at Trevor Lawrence and say – pressure or not I mean there's to Ryan's point too there's pressure in being the guy so even though yeah. it looked easy there's pressure maybe in Trevor Lawrence being the number one recruit coming out there's pressure in Justin Fields being the number two recruit behind Trevor Lawrence coming out did Fields answer some of those questions in that game against Clemson when yeah. it was like I got broken ribs and people are telling me I can't do this this and this and he nailed all of it in one playoff game answered can you can I work quick enough can I play under pressure can I play you know hurt and all that stuff so it just adds another variable, and it's not as clean as what we do. We grade every single throw, but there are other things that are in play, right, when it comes to quarterbacks. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was a, a fun interview. He's, this is one of the most interesting sort of single events or single themes in NFL history to me. I, I find that 98 draft, particularly when you look at the players around them, you know, it wasn't mm -hmm. just Manning Leaf. It was also Charles Woodson, Randy Moss. Like, this was a nuts draft. Um and for, for it to be such a, a kind of toss-up before the event and yet a complete no-brainer after the event. You know, the, I think it fundamentally changed how much onus teams do put on the psychological aspect of, of this um, stuff. And I know, like, he was making the point that, hey, look, if you're talented, they're going to overlook a lot. And they are, but, like, Johnny Football wasn't in the running, really, to be the number one overall pick. Like he was a first-round pick with some questions. Yeah, but he but he also didn't have – he wasn't 6'5 with a cannon. Sure. but he was I, I just, 5'10 with a mm, – I think if the same things on. came up and the same red flags were presented, it wouldn't be – I don't think it would be a toss-up anymore for whatever much it was at the time. I think the league has at least developed a greater appreciation for those kinds of red flags. I do like the way he acknowledged, too, that the way that the league has gotten better at adjusting to players coming out of college and that it isn't – you know, fit my system, right. do what I do here at the NFL level. So uh, great discussion with Ryan Leaf. We'll have even more interviews as we go. Got a couple other great ones lined up. Let us know. Who do you want to hear? Who are the big names? When do you want Mark Brunel to be on the show? My hero. Oh, God. Trying to, trying to nail down Mark. Yeah. For the, are you going to wear your Mark Brunel jersey? I will absolutely wear Mark my Brunel? Mark Brunel jersey. If we have Mark on the show, my Brunel 1997 jersey will be on. Why don't you go the whole hog and get Jimmy Smith on as well? You could just rehash the whole season. And Keenan? Sure. Why not? Let's get Keenan on there. Uh -huh. We'll get Tony Baselli. Yeah. If we could pull Tony you Brackens. Have, you could just have a whole reunion show. I don't I need would to be love here. The 1996 to 99 Jaguars reunion show. Yeah. I think we could do it. Prisco. We'll get Prisco over here. He was like the top beat reporter for the Jags back then. Okay. Uh, we're losing, oral, we're losing history, listeners right now. An oral history of the late 90s Jags. That'll cook. 
Battle cook. You would listen to the hell out of it, but you'll also be presenting it. So I don't know who can, else will listen to can it. Can we get somebody to run the numbers on how the ni- late 90s Jags will do here? Because we'll, we'll, we'll go that route if we oh, need to. God. Anyway, we'll have some other great guests. Let us know who you want us to hear. We'll be back on Thursday. We'll get more into uh, our offseason analysis, free agency, the draft, what your team is going to do to get better this offseason because your team's going to win the Super Bowl. We'll tell you how in the coming weeks. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thanks to Ryan Leaf for joining the show. Absolutely. See you guys Thursday. Wave, Steve.